Well, welcome. So I have to ask you a question uh, as we start this message today. Did you use your gasoline last week? Uh, did you? Hopefully you didn't blow yourself up like that man in the video. But did you pour gas on the fire of your faith this week? Maybe you were encouraged to memorize. Maybe you were in the Word. Maybe you were doing service. But did you pour gas on the fire of your faith last week? I hope you did. And let's pray that God encourages us as we think about what we're going to do today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I do pray that we would grow our fire and protect it from everything that would seek to destroy us, to destroy your testimony in us and destroy the faith that is growing in each one of us. I pray that in Jesus' name. You know, last week I talked about how you can grow your fire and the gasoline you put on it. But, you know, fires need a few things to continue, don't they? Tim knows that well, and he shared with me some of those. First, you need heat. you got to have heat to keep a fire going, don't you? Next, you have to have oxygen to keep it going. Without oxygen, it gets smothered. And you have to have fuel. You know, in each one of us, if we don't have the spiritual equivalent of those three things, our fire will go out. You know, whenever we have a hint of a desire to grow in the Lord, to be nurtured in the faith, to do things that please Him, enemies will come. You know, the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy, presents enemies of God, opponents in the faith, things that will distract us, will discourage us. We need to take extra care and precaution to guard the faith that God has given us. You know, you have that flame now. We want to protect it, whether small or great, whether you poured gas on it last week or you didn't. We want to protect it. We have enemies that are so insidious. Some of them come from the inside. We have others that just attack head-on, trying to break down our offenses if they're too weak. In fact, this week I want to talk to you about four distinct enemies that Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, and Paul telling Timothy says to be on guard against. I want to talk about four enemies of your fire today. So let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14. I'll be reading from or quoting the ESV. So 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14. This is one of the central commands of that passage, and indeed of the whole book, and it says this, in 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul challenges Timothy, and indeed each one of us, to guard our fire, and reminds us that it needs guarding against something, and that the Holy Spirit will be the one who enables us to actually accomplish the guarding of the fire. I want to talk about, just very briefly, the three parts of that verse that I feel are important as we move on and then look at what we are to guard against. First of all, I think I'd like to give you uh, my own translation, not because it's great, because it's not literal, because it's interpretive, maybe in some language that we can understand. So this is how I wrote it. Take it or leave it, but this is how I, how I see it. It says this, With the help of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, make special arrangements to keep out enemies of your walk with Jesus. The exact same things that I, Paul, taught you and showed you in my life so that your faith is not damaged. And I want to draw some of that meaning out very briefly. When you look at guard, that means to take special measure, to post military guards, special precautions that something isn't damaged or lost. I think there's some irony in there, isn't there? Who was Paul guarded by his entire time? Soldiers. 
He was guarded by soldiers that it was their duty to ensure that he did not escape prison. So he's very familiar with this language, and he uses that language of which Timothy also would have been familiar with to talk about the faith. The next thing, the next idea is the property, that that deposit entrusted to them. That's property given to someone else. But it's only used three times in the New Testament, and all of them in Paul, and all of them in the epistles, or sorry, the pastoral epistles that he writes. And so this word really talks about life and doctrine, the spiritual heritage. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, it says, guard your life and doctrine. Why do I say that? Well, oftentimes we collapse this idea into facts. It says, remember the facts. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. He is charging Timothy to remember my way of life. And that's what he says to guard the good deposit. His life lived with Timothy. All the things we talked about last time that they experienced and shared together. And finally, I want to talk about by. What does that mean, by the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it means that when we rely on the Holy Spirit... He is the one who enables us to actually guard the faith, like I said earlier. Jesus called him the helper. And in my, in my preparation, I even I had a little trouble just saying that he is the helper. But that's the reality. He's the one who helps us through. The Holy Spirit is God of very God. And his role in our faith, and what I see in this passage, is the one who helps us accomplish the guarding. So we are to take special measures and precautions to guard our fire against enemies who will attack it. The Holy Spirit makes sure this is accomplished in our life. He is the enabler, the one who causes it to happen. You know, I love heist movies. Maybe some of you guys do too. Ocean's Eleven. Have you ever seen that? I'm sure some of you have. I see some heads nodding. You know, in that movie, those guys take great measure to steal from casinos, right? In fact, in one of them, I don't remember which one, Ocean 11, 12, 13, 23, whatever. Whatever one it was. In fact, there's a Chinese guy who is able, this acrobat and contortionist, right? And they stick him in this little thing and put him in a room so he can steal whatever's in there and turn off the alarm. You know what? But life, it's never that hard, actually. You know, I came across a story when I was thinking about guarding where a painting, a famous painting. In fact, Vincent van Gogh's painting of poppy seeds that was valued around $50 million was stolen. And this wasn't a long time ago. It was in 2010. And uh, there was an inquiry. It was stolen from Cairo Museum. There was an inquiry which led to 11 people being jailed. You know why they were put in jail? There's three reasons. Not a single alarm in the entire museum worked. Okay? That's not all. Six out of 43 cameras worked. So there were 37 that didn't work. And the budget had been cut by $7 million. But that doesn't really put it in perspective. They were given 80000 of the requested $7.1 million. So they were missing like 1,000% of what they... There was a lot of money missing. And so there was one guard on duty most days. Man, like, I believe that they were probably, in fact shocked at how easy it was to walk away with a $50 million painting. And I think that provides some good illustrative material for us. In fact, that painting hasn't been recovered today. You know what? Frankly, our faith needs guarding, and we need help. It's much more valuable than some painting, even by Vincent van Gogh. I think we have examples in Scripture of those who did and didn't guard it. We can think of David and Solomon of Peter even, when he betrayed the Lord. We think we can think of good examples 
of Joseph, Joshua, Paul, and of course our Lord, who went to the cross never denying that God sent him. But have you let your guard down? Are there areas in your life where you've not heeded this call? Is your painting, is your faith, as it were, unguarded? Our faith is too valuable to leave unguarded. So I want you to do something with me. Um, you might find it cheesy, but just play along, okay? In your hands, I want you right now to think that you have a fire. Maybe it's on the floor in front of you in your lap, wherever, but imagine that you have a fire right now with me. And that fire is your faith. Now imagine four enemies surrounding it, dark figures ready to attack it and stamp it out. They want no oxygen to get there. They want no heat to remain. They want to take out the logs from your fire of faith. They're ready to fight you for your faith. You need to guard against them. Now, I want you to take that picture and follow with me as we look at the four guards against those enemies and what those enemies are. The first one from 2 Timothy is this. We need to guard our fire against shame. I think shame in our Christian life is like a giant bucket of water on our fire. I'm sure you felt ashamed at different times. But you know what? This enemy comes from within. No one makes you feel ashamed, do they? They might make fun of you at school. They might actually hit you for your faith. In fact, we know that Christians around the world are persecuted and killed for their faith. But no one makes us feel ashamed. Shame comes from a different place. comes from inside. And so, Paul tells Timothy in 1.8, this, uh, he tells him, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Timothy was tempted to be ashamed of two things here in this verse. Jesus and Paul, his mentor in the faith. Because of culture of wisdom that thought the resurrection was absolutely stupid, only a fool would believe that matter, that the physical realm meant anything, had any value, and other factors, his faith was a thing of shame in the culture. He was tempted to be ashamed, not only of Jesus, who he was saved by, but of Paul, his mentor. In fact, Paul was in prison, a shameful thing itself. I don't think that's unlike today. And I think you guys understand that. You know, there's a recent video of Bernie Sanders talking to Russell Vaught. I think that's how you say his name. The guy who was going to be appointed in the budget office, I believe, is deputy director. And the conclusion in that video was that Russell Vaught was unfit for service in the public arena because he believed in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the only way to heaven. The stance of many former evangelical leaders you might recall as well. People like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren who have denied the exclusivity of Christ, the reality the reality of hell, and other things. Now, we're all familiar with those, but what about you? Have you ever stood by and watched as someone is ridiculed for their faith? Maybe it was at school or at work and you just didn't stick up for them because of the shame you knew that you would feel if you did. The solution to that, I think, Paul gives Timothy in its right expectations. Suffering and ridicule are part and parcel of the Christian life, but they don't have to lead to shame. He says that in 3, 1 through 5. He says it later in that chapter as well when he says, Indeed, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have an easy life, will have some hard times. No, will suffer persecution. Jesus himself, if we need better evidence, promised it and went through it. He never did anyone wrong. 
He never did anyone wrong, and he was killed. He suffered persecution for his trust in God and for his beliefs. So that's the solution. How do we guard against the enemies of fear and shame? We put up that first guard in your life, right? Of your faith. In your fire, the first of those four guards is right expectations. We have a different perspective, don't we? We have faith in a future hope, not this present life only. We have faith in a righteous God who knows better than we do, and thank the Lord he does. Belief that humans are ultimately sinful and corrupt allows us to interact without setting a bar too high for others or ourselves. We have forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, who allows that shame to go away when we come to him and confess our sins. We have victory over the world in Jesus, who has overcome even death. That's a different perspective to the shame that we might be tempted to feel. We also have a different motivation, don't we? You know, shame and fear have been a part of my life when I struggle with different things, and they only lead in a downward spiral of sin and more sin and more shame and more fear. Instead, we have an eternal reward and a God in control who will bring us, as Paul says at the end of his life, safely into his kingdom. And those things are great motivators. Reward, safety in Christ. So, how do you guard against the enemy of shame? You put up the guard of right expectations. I would say to you not to expect people to be too happy about your beliefs. I would say, in fact, expect people to cut ties with you when you're open with the gospel. I think that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. In fact, not only outside in the world, but inside. Those who call themselves believers. There are some who will fight. I would expect not only that, but an all-out brawl for the truth in your own life. I think that's what Paul says in Romans 7. And I, and I need to be reminded of this of myself. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. There is a battle going on for your fire in the world and in your own life. You know, a phrase I often use with myself in hard situations, as one brother who used to go here told me, preach to yourself, don't listen to yourself. So what did I expect? You know, one of the guys on Wednesday morning gave a good example to me of Navy SEAL training. You know, these guys go through a lot to finish and graduate. And some of the graduates have given money and training equipment on the beach. And this training equipment on the beach bears a couple of slogans. And I remember two of them. Here they are. The beatings will continue until morale improves. And the only easy day was yesterday. You know, if you go into training as a Navy SEAL, man, you better be ready. (laughs) You better be ready for the hardest challenge of your life physically and mentally, and I know nothing of that. You'd have to ask someone who's been through it. I'm sure I would fail. I would drop out, right? The idea there is that if we go into the Christian life expecting anything other than difficulties, yet with the right expectations, we will fail. God is working to bring us safely into his kingdom. Put up the guard of right expectations in your life to fight shame and fear. That's the first guard around your little fire that hopefully you have in your mind. You know, I know several young guys here who have taken, I'm so encouraged by it, who have taken the bold step with eyes wide open to share their faith with some of their friends that that they really did business with, that they hung out before. They really got serious about their faith. 
Isn't it so encouraging to see someone do that? To step out and do that? In your mind and in conversations with others, fight the fact that our culture trains you to want to win. And I'm preaching to myself, (laughs) right? I even struggle with it in softball. We live in a winner culture where we expect a trophy, a promotion, a job, a better house. That's not reality. I'm going to say something. I hope it doesn't offend you, but I, I heard it of a story. There was a guy named Adam who works with my boss in Canada. And a pastor told him something that shook him up. He was talking about all these self-help things, and he said, just stop. My God is a naked loser who died on a cross. Now, I say that in the most reverent of ways. Jesus is not a naked loser, and yet there is some truth in that, isn't there? He came to this earth. Victory over death is his and the resurrection, but he died on a cross, naked. He is the one to whom we trust and was raised from the dead, but that's reality. I think on this front, combining those things, practice makes perfect in some ways. You know, you get to a point where you're like, yeah, what can this guy do to me? You know, um, I'm not the perfect example, but I have been shouted down. I know people here who have been as well. I've never been spit on, but I know people in this body that have. You get to a point where you realize there's only so much a man can do to you, right? And our brothers and sisters around the world are very acquainted with this. They share their faith in hostile cultures every day. And so put up the guard of right expectations to guard your fire against the enemy of shame. So we have that around our fire, the guard of expectations. We also need to guard against delicious distractions, which will cause great harm to your faith. Distractions are going to do this. They're going to have you build a second fire and not put wood in yours. So that little fire of yours is going to get, or maybe big, no matter how big it is, it's going to dwindle as distractions take away the fuel from it. You know, as I thought about distractions, as I was actually writing the sermon, Bob Deffenbaugh sent me an article by Tim Challies about this very thing, about continuing in the faith and about guarding it. And there he reminded me of my love for YouTube fail videos. Um, And so I'd like to show you one that I cut up that's about 40 seconds long. If we could just watch that. There's no uh, sound or anything, but... Just watch this. I think you get the picture that someone is walking distracted. And they end up, that lady, did you see? She actually stepped over the barrier into the water with her phone. I've done that, actually. I hit my head on the flowers at our house when I was texting. The idea is this. Don't get distracted. It's very tempting in this world to be distracted by those things that seem sweet don't they? But in the end, you're going to walk over something and end up in a big pool, and your faith is going to suffer. You know, Paul told Timothy to stay away from distracted living. That is the second main enemy of the faith in this book. He told him, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits or affairs in chapter 2, verse 3. He said in 4, 5, always be sober-minded. And that idea is have focus, Right? Be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He also says, flee youthful passions in 2.22. And I actually think that I have misunderstood that verse for a long time. So I want to look at that in the context. So if you'll turn with me quickly there in 2.22. If you look through the book, I think the key distraction that Timothy is facing is the desire to argue 
or to be defensive about the truths of the faith and his lifestyle. I learned this verse, I memorized it actually before I did the presentation last Sunday, in the context of sexual temptation, but I want to say to you that I don't think that's right. I think the main point of that, the youthful passion, is to be defensive about what you know is right. And then that leads to what? Arguing and quarreling. And if you look throughout the book, those are two things that are specifically noted that Paul charges Timothy. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. And there are other places as well. Now, I don't think that's the only distraction. If you look at 3, 1 through 5, there are a lot of things there. And I was, as I was memorizing, I'm like, he probably threw everything he could by the direction of the Holy Spirit into those five verses. I think there's 18 negative qualities, including distractions. But I think the tone of the book specifically says, don't get distracted from the gospel and the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life by arguments. Have you ever had a teacher that was so kind and gentle that no one could get them to argue? In fact, when there was an argument possibility, they turned it into a learning experience, right? There was a teacher like that at DTS. His name was Zane Hodges. He was so gentle and so unable, people were so unable to pull him into arguments. And these are guys like myself, sadly, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, whenever I was there, that are ready to cut their teeth against these famous greats of the faith, man. They're ready to get their arguments. They've read books. They know a lot. But here's Zane Hodges, calm and collected, always gentle. Those are great examples for us. Those are the ones we do well to imitate, but there's the other side. Are you like that, where someone has to actually make an appointment? See, it was so bad in his class that ever I think it was every week, he actually had to appoint someone to challenge him in class because they knew it was useless. And he wanted some fodder, some teaching material there, so he had to appoint someone. Is it like that in your life, where you have to appoint someone to argue with you about the faith because they know that you won't do it? Or do people go to your Facebook page looking to see a good fight. They know they go there and they're going to see a knockdown, drag-out argument about some principle of the faith, and all that's going to do is distract them from the realities of salvation and sanctification in our Lord Jesus. Which one of those do you find yourself in? Maybe it's not Facebook. I don't know what it is for you. But then I think the question is, what is that guard around your fire? What is the second guard? I think it's actually focus. Focus in the Christian life. This is the centrality of Jesus Christ and the gospel to everything you do. I think it's clear in this book. All over the place. See, we cannot simply expect to do away with distractions by replacing them with other distractions. For those of us who follow Jesus, if you look at the second half of 2.22, we must fill that void with something else. He says, so flee youthful passions and what? And pursue... Righteousness, faith, love, and peace in community along with those who call on the name of the Lord. Paul says later that Timothy had followed several things. Two of them were his conduct and his aim in life. If you're familiar with Philippians, which I'm sure many of you are, what does he say there? In 3.13 he says, this one thing I do. His life was centered around Jesus Christ and the gospel. Focus. So put up the guard of focus or another fire will be kindled in your life. And your fire will be neglected. I have to share with you, as I've done before, that there are certain struggles in each one of your life that will absolutely dominate you if you aren't careful to be focused. They'll hurt you. They'll hurt your family, your children. 
You will feed that fire. It will become an addiction. You will lie about it. It will rule your life, and you will ex- you will absolutely neglect God's purpose and calling. For me, that was games, as I've shared with you before. And I have to confess that even recently, that fire has been fed too much in my life. What fire are you feeding daily? Where's your focus? What are the things that will kill your fire if you don't guard against them? What do you fill your headspace with on a daily basis? What do you find yourself defending in your own head and to others that you do or say? Does walking away from a game, an argument, or a show really bug you? If it does, whatever that thing is, they are a sure distraction to your life. And they will kill your fire of faith as they have killed mine. So put up the second guard of your fire against those enemies of focus. So we have guard of focus. We have the guard of right expectations to fight shame and distraction. The third guard for your fire that you have either in your hands or on the floor, maybe in your lap. The third guards, sorry, the third enemy says something like this. I'm just waiting for the right time to do that. I've done enough in my life. I need a break now for the next few years, actually. I'm a procrastinator, but I'll get it done. I just need pressure. I need that pressure of the moment to succeed. Yeah, right. I know you better than that, and I know myself better than that. This is the enemy of laziness. And I think we see that in the book of Second Timothy. See, Timothy was to put in the hard work needed for his calling. It says in chapter 2, verse 5, the hardworking farmer is to have the first share of the crops. In 4.3, it says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And I take out of season to be any time that you don't want to, whether it's circumstances or yourself. Preach it. And then in 2.15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I think those are words that speak of opposing laziness. They're hard work. I think God ordains work for us to guard our fire. Even unfruitful work. Because we seek him in this cursed world through it. Paul knows, as he says later, that it is God who rewards and it is him who Paul is working for. He says that in the end, he's going to get a reward from the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. He charges Timothy, in fact, in the presence of God and of Jesus. So if you think, though, here, and and watch this, if you think the guard of laziness is hard work, I think we miss it. I think the guard of laziness is actually the right boss, knowing for whom we work. You know, have any of you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? I like that show. It's pretty cool. If you haven't, I'll tell you just a brief little bit about it. In that show, a boss goes undercover. Imagine that, given the name. Usually it's a big company. And he goes because he needs to see what's going on in his company or he wants to try to fix a problem. In one of those shows in particular, I loved it because there is a lady who's an administrative assistant at a landfill. And she is overworked and underpaid. In fact, she is a good servant in her home. We find out that she's actually taking care of her brother or her brother-in-law and her sister or sister-in-law because they've lost their job. So she's essentially supporting two families alone. It's so touching because at the end of that, the boss sees her character and her desire to work regardless of circumstances, and he gives her not only a big raise, but a giant check to help her. And I think she actually might have been able to buy a car with that check, so it was pretty large. I think that illustrates for us 
that when we work for the right reasons, with the right motives, we will be able to guard our fire. If we work for the right boss, our fire will not be extinguished. So we fight the enemy of laziness by working for the right boss. You know, we don't work for a pay raise at our work. We don't work for a better house, an easier life. We don't even work for our wives and children to have a better life. No, we work for something far better, don't we? Eternal glory. Did you catch that in 2 Timothy? Where it says, salvation with eternal glory. And I'm forgetting the exact verse. But I think it's in chapter 2. Chapter 2 in the middle. It says, we work, or we are saved with eternal glory that comes with it. We will see the smiling face of God. And when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Just as Paul said, he's looking forward to that day. And that's our motive. And that's who we work for. And that guards against laziness. So who are you working for in your life? Who is your boss? You know, I think, ironically, there's something that, when we talk about laziness, that one of the brothers pointed out to me. Sometimes it comes at us in a weird, sneaky way. We stay at work really long hours to avoid our home life. We avoid praying because we're too busy with our family. We avoid reading the Bible because we're too busy in ministry. We avoid the Lord because we are just too busy. You know what? Ironically, laziness is simply, in our life, avoiding the call of God. Whatever he has set you to do, don't avoid it. Instead, know who you work for. Know it's going to be hard. Remember that you work for him. That is the third guard to your fire that will fight the enemy of laziness. So now... If you're with me, you have three guards around your fire against three enemies. There's one more. This last one, probably the most insidious of all enemies of the faith. In fact, Satan is called by this enemy, this enemy's name often. The enemy is lies, and Satan is called the father of lies. And we must guard our fire against lies. In fact, lies will touch every other one of those three enemies in different ways. And they will extinguish your fire. I don't know what you've had in your mind, but I imagine lies in my own life and in your life looking at our fire and just, boom, gone. Lies will kill your fire. And Paul tells Timothy about that. This example, if you look at 2, 4, chapter 2, verse 4, an athlete competing according to the rules. I think that is something that has this idea of truth and lies wrapped up in it. False ideas and philosophies abound. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that some people have swerved from the truth. Maybe they haven't gone the other way and turned around on the freeway. They've just gotten off at an exit. In fact, this one, he says, they've talked wrongly about the timing of the resurrection. In 2.26, he goes so far as saying that the devil is himself involved in convincing people of lies. You know, man, I remember a boy... Uh, when I, my first teaching job in Galena, Illinois, and I had a lot of trouble with this boy in the classroom. Uh, for those of you who teach, he's the one who you want to take up and punch in the face. I'm just confessing to you, that's how I felt about him, okay? That's not sanctified, that's just me. Um, and it got to a point where I had to take him into the principal's office with me one day after school. He didn't have the best upbringing, but we had to go talk to the principal. And we were talking about things, and I think it was at one point where he's making an excuse about, 
what he was doing in class or something. And she like looks at him, and this is an, this is an older lady with a lot of season. And you know, when you when she talked, you paid attention. So she leans over and she says, "Stop being a tool of the devil. He's using you to do his will in Philip's classroom." I was like, "Whoa! All right, <laughs> problem solved. Okay, right." <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's reality. No matter how you dress a lie up, it's never the truth. In fact, we, we see that in Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 4, it's so bad in his ministry, and he promises us and ours, that people won't even want to listen to the truth. I call this selective hearing. Do you know people like that? I knew my grandpa was a selective hearer. You know, we'd be outside in the yard playing something, and my grandma would yell from the yard, Robert, come in and help me with the potatoes. He'd look at me and my brother, wherever we were, give us a wry smile and say, I didn't, I didn't hear you. And he'd stay out there playing with us. But when it came to cookies, man, she yelled, cookies are ready, and bam, he's right in there with us. Selective hearing, right? Choosing what we want to listen to. Doing that, whatever it is, Lies in that form or outright lies will kill your faith. They will destroy it. But on the other hand, the truth of God is the guard to the lies of Satan, to the lies of the world all around you, and to the lies you tell yourself and others. The truth of God will guard you. Station it around your fire, because without that one, you will not survive in the faith. You will, your faith will die. We've seen it. You've seen it. I don't have to give you examples. You know, the interesting thing is that usually begins small, sometimes a little white lie, but always continues downward. Romans 1, I think, talks about a pattern of truth and opposition to it and lies. It gets so bad, doesn't it, in Romans 1, that people actually call lies the truth, and they hate it. That's what we're talking about. But I want to take that and make it a little more personal. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? I think that does a really good job of capturing for us. In that book, he says that each one of us is assigned. I don't know if it's the truth. It's not in the scripture, but it's a good imaginative depiction of our life and our fight against lies. It says that Satan assigns a demon to each one of us. And that demon has a special way in which he can attack us. And it's almost always through a lie. Just as it was with Adam and Eve, so it is with us. One, to suit your very weakness, like me. And so, I think another picture, an illustration for us, of why we need the truth so bad is this. You know, there are jobs when you have to wear a hazmat suit. Now, one such job, every day in the field you have to wear it, one such job was a water cleanup specialist in nuclear or radioactive areas where a nuclear disaster had happened. And you're probably thinking, yeah. Will you ever get to use that job? Will you ever do anything? But I tell you what, in 2011, if you remember, there were people called in like that that had to wear a hazmat suit because in Fukushima, Japan, a reactor had a disaster and there was radiation leak and it was so dangerous that you'd die if you got too close. And there was a water supply nearby, evidently. And so a team of specialists was called in to a hazardous workplace where even taking off the hazmat suit would mean death for them. One team member recounted, as I read, about the fact that he had to sleep in his suit for several days to accomplish the job. Now, why do I give you that? I think that's a great picture of our life. We are bombarded by lies. Our culture tells them to us. We tell them to ourselves. 
Satan whispers in our ear. And we need the truth, like a hazmat suit to protect us, like a breath of fresh air. The only way we will survive in that kind of environment is the truth of God. Let me give you two concrete examples as we wrap up here in a second of ways in which we believe lies or ways in which we succumb to the lies of the devil or ourself that we need to guard against. One, justification. That's a big one in my life. Whether it's ourselves, the world, or Satan behind it, we often justify our behavior. Let's call it what it is. You can't dress it up. It is a lie. It often begins something like this. I deserve that because. I needed that because. I had to do that or else. It often begins like that. Don't justify. Don't dress up lies. Meet them with the truth of God. The second thing I think we do, and I think this is coming from our culture that is embedded in us, we polarize the truth. What do I mean by that? We give two opposites. For example, well, either I get to watch my show or I'm going to be bored forever. Well, that's not true. That's a lie. If I don't make sure this guy really knows the truth and argue with him right now, he will end up making a mess of his life. But you don't know that. Those are two opposites that are neither true. Either you cheer for the Cubs or you're a loser. Well, that one's true. Uh, They aren't so hot this year. But I'd like to ask you right now, where are you at with a guard of truth in your life to fight the enemy of lies? Have you put up that guard? Are you ready? It's an insidious enemy. It comes from everywhere. You need the truth in your life. Jesus himself said, what? He said, the truth will set you free. My friends, I would love for nothing more than for you to be set free. For your fire to have gas poured on it, be guarded by those four things, which I'll rehearse for you in a second, and to please the Lord with your life. That's what I got from 2 Timothy in my sabbatical and now, and I've shared with you. So guard your fire against the enemies that want to put it out. Post those four guards. The guard of focus against distractions. The guard of right expectations against shame. The guard of working for the right boss to fight laziness. Finally, the guard of truth, which will combat the lies that are surrounding you in this world. Then your fire will continue. But I want you to get some laser focus right now. I want you to think about that fire and pick one of those things one of those enemies and guards in your mind right now. And so when you come here next Sunday, my prayer and my hope for you is that that one area that you can say before the Lord when you sit down in your seat, they're assigned. It's not spoken, but they're assigned. So you'll probably be sitting exactly there. So when you sit there next week, you will be able to praise God that you have guarded your fire against that enemy. Pick one of them and do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life this week. We all have things that attempt to kill our fire. What are they for you? From the book of 2 Timothy. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? So I'm going to do something now I don't usually do. But I'm going to ask you to just listen with your heads bowed. I don't know where you're at today. But I'd rather you pray than me. Put aside all the distractions, the lies, and the shame of the past. Talk to God. Meet with Him right now and ask Him to help you by the power of His Spirit, which He promises to you this week to do what you've committed.
Be with him now. Do that in prayer. Commit that one thing. And when you feel right and when you're done with the Lord, you may go. May God be with your spirit. Grace be with you.